X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. We join you nearly live from the studios of X-Ray FM in North Portland, the Falcon Arts Building. Is that good? <laughs> that was, I'm trying to add my, my, yeah. X, my XM, my FM voice. Oh, I, I see. I, <clears throat> and welcome <laughs> to the Beer Bonnet Podcast, starring Jeff Allworth and Patrick Worth, Emerson. Worth, Worth. <laughs> uh, and next, Monster Trucks, <laughs> featuring Truckosaurus. This thing has gone off the rails immediately. Wait a minute. What are we talking about? Oh, beer. beer. Yeah, yeah, Hi. yeah. Something. Uh, so we're still here in the in the in the Falcon Arts Building basement, which is good because hot outside. We're here with cold beer, uh, ready to talk about beer, particularly today pale ales. That's right. Are you going to introduce introduce me? You just shot right past that. No, 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 no. I'm I'm trying out new ways to do this. Uh, all right. I'm sorry. One eventually after I've done like my hundredth iteration, we'll get to when it works. <laughs> I am Patrick Emerson. Your host, <laughs> with me, with me for color commentary is Jeff Allworth. Say, I, hi, say hi, Jeff. I am, <laughs> I am Jeff Allworth, your co-host. Uh, well, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have you have written some books though, so that's kind of cool. Uh, you wrote the Beer Bible, which. As I was saying before we recorded, I actually consulted before this podcast. I know, and you were just raving about it. It was actually a little bit embarrassing for me, but but I but I appreciate that. Uh, I do actually that, think that, that's how I remember it. I actually think it was um, pretty well done. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about like the you know the graphics, and yeah. the production, and stuff like that. That was good. Yeah, it was a good publisher. Yeah, that they, was could, good. they they pretty pretty it up. The content, you know, I don't know, but uh, the Widmer Way is also out. Ulligan Press. You can hear it on audio, right? Is that done yet? I have recorded the audio. I don't know if you can purchase the audio. So for if your you're so holes. impressed with Jeff's audio stylings on this podcast, guess what? You can sit with him for what? Six hours? How long is it going to be? I don't know. 12 hours yeah, talking about beer. Yeah. Just on and on and on and on. Certainly worth 20 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. If you don't have time to read, just listen to Jeff. That's right. The sweet, sweet, sweet tones of Jeff's voice. Uh, I teach economics at Oregon State when I'm not talking about beer. That's right. Fortunately, this is summertime, so guess what? I'm not on contract. That's I right. Whatever the hell I and want. You're, you're in high spirits today. <laughs> That's probably because it's the second podcast in a row. And for some reason, I don't know why, you can tell me my spirits get a little bit higher as we <laughs> come on, on, man. Illusion of immediacy. Illusion of immediacy. Don't, 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 con- don't confess that, that you're half in the bag. <laughs> uh, Will Romy's here. Hi, Will. He produces this thing. Uh, and uh, Simon's here again to take photographs. That's right. Simon, yeah. your son. Yeah. Uh, hi, Simon. Hi. Okay. Uh, so, in our previous episode recorded a week ago, <laughs> is that better? You've blown it by now. Uh, Jeff and I both recently visited the Maine Beer Company. What was interesting to both of us about the Maine Beer Company is that although they are famous for their IPAs, the founding Cleven, Cliven, Claben, tell me, Jeff, don't you know? I don't know. <sighs> C L E B A N. You're here for one reason, and yeah, all right. Clavin, it, it, if it's if it's to disappoint you, I'm nailing it. <laughs> Clavin Brothers. They launched the brewery on a pale ale called Peeper, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, that they perfected as home brewers. Uh, Peeper got us dreaming about pale ales, and we thought we'd devote an episode to them. Uh, which, by the way, you know. So as we were talking about what what we're gonna do, I went back to the archives, mm-hmm. and we've never 
done a style, a deep dive on the style of pale, which is remarkable since it's kind of the style that launched craft beer in the United States. It's true. It's right there under our nose the whole time, and we just missed it. But we missed gonna, it no which, longer. Which is going to be kind of a theme of today's episode. That's right. We're talking about pales. We're going to talk about pales. So uh, though you might not be excited now, you will be excited by the end. You should be excited. Pale is a, one of the best styles of beer brewed in these United States. American pale ale, I've said it, I'll defend it. Uh, and I will say, we're going to talk about this again, but we've since we just mentioned Peeper, Peeper is a great place to start and finish. If you happen to live where it's sold. So Mainers, get out there. But Mainers already know, so I don't know. Everyone else is going to have to get up there to Maine. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk about pale ales today, but of course, before we talk about pale ales, we have to talk about the news. As we record this, the GABF, that is the Great American Beer Festival, has still not sold out all the tickets for their annual fall fete. This is a far cry from the heat this festival once generated, when tickets would sell out in seconds. The festival has expanded and now has 62,000 available spots, but the slowing enthusiasm illustrates a pattern seen in fests everywhere. Fun fact, (laughs) I, for six years, was a professor at the University of Colorado at Denver. Right, I knew that. And my office was a block away from the convention center. I also knew that. And uh, when the GIBF happened, I always knew because there's people running around with beer cups. Uh, lots and lots and lots of people running around with beer cups going in and out of the convention center. So, uh, interesting. It's a big, giant fest. It's in the worst location ever. I mean, Denver's great, but at the inside the convention center is... Have you have you been to the fest? No. No, I never did. <laughs> But I've been inside the convention center, yeah. so I know of what I speak. Uh, you're, you're correct. It is exactly what you think. And But but even worse, because you probably can't evoke in your own mind's ear the aural torment of 62,000 people screaming at the same the time. The drunken people. Yeah. It's, it's bad enough at the Oregon Brewers Festival, right? which is mostly outdoors, but even in, but inside the tents, it gets really loud and just like cacophonous. This is a giant open area magnified by concrete. Yeah. So let's talk about this because I'm not surprised at all about this. And I imagine that something similar is happening to the Oregon Brewers Festival, which is these big, giant, like catch-all beer festivals where we're just going to get as much beer as we possibly can and you just come and sample whatever you want. Yeah. Is kind of a dying thing. Yeah, I mean, I think... As uh, people get more sophisticated. I don't know about dying, but uh, definitely the excitement for them is is being tempered somewhat. On the wane. On the wane, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think they had a, a crowd at the OBF this year. Both of us were out of town, couldn't go, so we don't know, but... Um, I was but, in town, could go, didn't go. Oh. Yeah. I was out of town. Yeah, you had a real excuse. <laughs> uh, no, because I'm kind of... I, uh, I think I'm not... Un- atypical in that I'm kind of uh, if I'm going to go to a beer fest there are lots of smaller more focused ones however yes well I guess it, anyway I'm going to evoke the OBF later in a, in a, I don't mean to I don't in, mean to in, denigrate in the, the OBF, context of our, of been, our pale ales I, I've been many times and uh, it is a big scene and that can be very fun right and that can be also very tiring and uh, I think that as people get more sophisticated these kind of tightly controlled like where you taste you know uh, here's a good idea. Let's have one all about Pilsner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's actually a Pilsner Fest coming up, uh, uh, hosted by uh, uh, Prost slash Stomtich. There you go. And um, they're bringing in the 
master brewer at Bitburger to do it all. Ooh. And guess who's one of the celebrity judges? Uh, okay, Alex Ganoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Harris, Van Havik. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. I know, I know. Alan Taylor. <laughs> I really set myself up for that one. I just oh. wandered right into it. I just, I just. Uh, oh wait a minute, you're talking about yourself. <laughs> oh just, yeah. I just should have seen that coming. Wow, boy. You're. Uh, uh, but no, but that's exactly what. What a what a fantastic festival. I know. The brewmaster right? from Bitburger is going to come in and talk about pilsners. Yeah. They're going to have a whole bunch of local pilsners. Yep. I mean. That's it's a, that's it, precisely the kind of thing that I'm particularly interested in now and less interested in like these big giant festivals, which can kind of get a little bit bro-ish, fat, frat boy-ish. Not so much the R. The OBF has kind of evolved, though. Yeah. It's less that now. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, there you uh, go. There you go. Uh, get get if, if those tickets are still available. Yeah. It's a good, good opportunity. The other thing that I would say is that the beer festivals used to be it a unique chance to taste beers that you could never otherwise, mm. which is still kind of true because they'll bring special beers. Right. But the availability of craft beers from around the country at you know specialty beer stores and stuff has really increased. So they're not quite as novel as they used to be as well. Indeed. All right, go. The Seattle Times reports that the parent company of Pyramid Brewing, which also owns Portland Brewing and Magic Hat, was forced to pay nearly half a billion, million dollars, not billion, million, in wages to current and former employees of its Seattle brew pub, uh, the company has been shaving had been shaving hours uh, to avoid paying workers overtime. Ooh. Yeah, so that's terrible. It is really terrible, and you know that I, I, when you read this uh, before we we came on, you called me a communist, and <laughs> and and I and I and, and we knew that I was going to have to read that one because I this is a, an issue I'm really passionate about, and. Uh, to begin with, people who work for breweries only make a lot of money anyway. Right. If you're working overtime, by God, you should be paid for your overtime. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm sure they're getting paid time and a half. So, you, so instead of getting paid time and a half, you're getting paid no time, and it's just egregious. Yeah. So, uh, Pyramid, get your act together. And meanwhile, I, I got to tell you, until I heard that they were getting their act together, I would not spend a dime on that company, and that would kind of screw the workers. So I'm conflicted there, but man, that really irritates me. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's a there's a level at which, I, I you know, the problem is these struggling companies perhaps you know are are feel the pressure to cut corners, but you don't cut corners on your on your labor. No, I mean that's that's the heart and soul of your business. So absolutely, and I think this is you know there's a lot of talk of oh you know it's all about the beer and but when you have a foreign owned company and this is owned by co- a Costa Rican concern, mm. you probably care a lot less about. Uh, workers in in Seattle than if the people you know w- were working and living in Seattle like somebody at Rubens or Fremont you know who has to see these people every day and gets to know them and their families you're gonna pay, probably more likely pay them more often so this is one of those probably downsides for big corporate foreign ownership yeah so. absolutely I, I I agree 100% by the way this is slightly tangential but uh, and I imagine this is targeted because of the nature of things that I read and, and tweet about on Twitter but I've been getting all these tweets from Constellation brands. Have you been seeing these, where they're promoting oh. themselves as a con- you know as a collection of brands rather than promoting the individual beers? Uh, that's sort of apropos and if nothing about beer huh. <laughs> no, drink. But I thought it was a very interesting marketing strategy. Is that you're going to just go for it? Like, yeah, we're just a big conglomerate. We have all these brands. They're really cool. Well, don't, you th- don't you think? <laughs> Which is very different. So uh, we'll see. Go for it, Constellation brands. No hide the nut there. Yeah. All right, so let's turn to our main topic, pale ales. And when we were talking about what we were going to podcast about, 
I mentioned pale ales to you because, as I mentioned earlier in the pod, we had never done a pod before, and pale ales uh, seem to be kind of the forgotten stepchild of craft brewing, which is ironic because pale ales were really at the very beginning uh, of the pale ale trend. In fact, and I see that you're grabbing the thing here, uh, a lot of craft beer can be traced back directly to uh, Sierra Nevada pale, which is... Well, 100% right. Yeah, which is what you're uh, opening right now. And so it's interesting these days that pale ale is really, uh, and we'll talk about my, my experience trying to come up with beers for the podcast, uh, but pale ale is really taking a backseat to uh, India pale ales and other styles, uh, even though the pale ale was perhaps the beer that launched it all. Very, ah, Edwina. Very well done. Yes, very good use of Edwina. All right, so Edwina is our mic for those. So we're going to do a deep dive in pale ale uh, today, uh, and so why don't you get us started by talking about maybe the fact that it was started in the UK, growing from Burton's, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> let's start. Go. Let's start there. <laughs> so this style does, oh. in fact, is is an originally an English style, and uh, grew out of uh, malting practices, which allowed. Uh, maltsters to make paler malts. So, okay, so let me just st- step back for a second. At the time, uh, English brewers, UK brewers, were brewing what? Uh, they were brewing many things. Porters, but, bitters. Uh, this was uh, during the great porter era. Okay. So porters were the king of uh, British brewing at this period. Right. And the first pale ales weren't very pale. They were just slightly paler than the porters. That's where I was yeah. I was trying to lead you, right? Which so is the, the, the moniker pale ale is a slight misnomer. Right. They couldn't malt the, originally they couldn't malt the, the grain very pale, but uh, they were getting them paler. And, and over time, so the first, the first like, if you go back, uh, you find beers like Burton Ales, which were slightly paler. They were sort of a muddy brown. Right. Um, but paler. And then they continued to get paler and paler particularly in uh, this famous city that we've talked about on the podcast, Burton-upon-Trent. Mm-hmm. Burton-on-Trent. There's a lot of different ways of saying it. Burton. We'll call it Burton. Where uh, a number of unique characteristics came together to create kind of the famous pale ales out of Britain. And those include really hard, uh, stanky water. Water, yeah. <laughs> has, uh, <laughs> Lots of minerals. Uh, and also some sulfur. Sulfur, Which yes. creates what is known as the... Burton Snatch. Yes, which Patrick and I experienced together in Burton when we had a fine uh, pale ale from Worthington. That yeah. was what it was. Worthington White Shield. Yeah. Worthington White Shield, yeah, which I guess is actually a pa- an, an IPA. but And I will describe the Burton Snatch as an acquired taste. Yeah, it is. It's... There's there's two kinds of sulfur. There's the one that smells like a burned match, and there's one that smells like rotten, rotten eggs. eggs. This is not the burned match <laughs> no. smell, so it is really acquired. It's disgusting. Uh, is another way you could call it. But I it, it did grow on me. But yeah, I understand how it's something that you could. It's kind of like uh, uh, the people who eat um, marmite, right? Which is the spent yeast, gross spread that my stepfather used to try to push on me all through my youth. So a couple of other key things were that those those uh, that really hard water created a characteristic of stiff hopping, right? Uh, that was characteristic of these pale ales. The uh, yeast that are used in British beers are fruity, so you get a fruity quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have this Burton Snatch, and then the uh, the fruitiness kind of create this particular palate. Many of them were aged, so you get a you get Brettanomyces 
in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bass was an uh, had an aged pale ale mm-hmm. that was a bottled pale. So really distinctive from the kind of beers like we just poured out, which is Sierra Nevada. So how do we get to Sierra Nevada? Fast forward uh, to the 1960s mm-hmm. to your hometown, Corval- or your home, uh, your your college's hometown, Corvallis, Oregon, where the USDA was experimenting with new hop varieties right. that would grow in the United States. And one of the ones that they created, they created two. One was Willamette, one was Cascade. Mm-hmm. And that Cascade hop uh, was sort of the, 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 the parent, the gastronomic parent of American hoppy ales. Right. Because it has, as we all know, the, the classic, uh, very uh, American forward, uh, citrusy, floral to piney characteristics that, right. that really characterize new, new world hops that are very different from European hops. But they were a derivative of English hops, correct? Uh, they, yeah, Cascade uh, is uh, uh, partly Fuggle. Willamette is almost all Fuggle, right. and I think Cascade is Fuggle, and I don't know. We should look that up. It's yeah, but but they have. But some they were European taking. Parent. But they were taking English hops and and, uh, and geneticizing them. To, and a, and yeah. part of that is the terroir here of, right. of the United States. Yeah. So uh, there were guys like uh, this man named Ken Grossman, who was a home brewer in Chico, California. Uh-huh. Owned his own homebrew shop. Yeah, and early on, homebrewing uh, was heavily influenced by English. That's right. English beer, right? That's, yeah. That was kind of the first thrust of. It's partly because it's a really uh, conducive home homebrewing is really conducive to British ales. You can bottle condition and you can ferment at room temperature. You can ferment at room temperature exactly. Yeah. So there's a, uh, some ways in which it makes sense that way. But Ken was really into this Cascade hop, which he was able to get at a homebrew shop, which he actually opened in Chico. Mm-hmm. And he 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 made this pale ale that um, I'm now holding in my hand, mm-hmm. and it created in my in my, in my by my reckoning and in, in my writing, uh, it created the template for American beer. Yeah, uh, and we can talk a little bit about that, but let's taste the beer first. Okay, so let's do. Uh, every time I pour this out, I'm always shocked about how dark it is because yeah. it's so much darker <laughs> than you expect a pale ale to be. But it's 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 exactly what you'd expect a British pale ale to be. Right. So, um, you know. What is it? Gold to copper? What do you call that? Color yeah. seeing person? Yeah. I, that's just about exactly what I call it. Um, has a light citrus nose. I remember mm-hmm. in the 1980s when I first tasted this beer, it seemed like a crazy in, uh, intense citrus nose. Right. But now not so much. No. Nope. Um, and the palate has a lot of body and sweetness and uh, a fair amount of caramel in the palate. Right. You have any other comments you want to make about that? Well, I just wanted to have you uh, distinguish this from what we would sort of typically think of as a traditional British pale ale, which would be slightly more malt forward, less hop, less aromatic, aromatic hops. Yeah. So it's there. It's interesting. So I don't know what Ken was making as a home brewer, but when he first made this commercial, he he deviated pretty wildly from the British model in, in some key ways. Uh, there's more caramel malt. British pales may have caramel malt, but it's not the flavor of caramel is not really intense on right, the palate. Right. Uh, he used a very neutral yeast, so it doesn't contribute very much at right, all. Right. Uh, and he used this the the hopping is more insistent, and it has this kind of other character that yeah. uh, is uh, that comes both from late edition and and dry hopping. Right. Which those are those are English techniques, but because he's using a cascade hop, it has a really different presentation. Yeah. So it's safe to say, I, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, this really featured hops in a way that beers uh, prior to this had not. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And it and it particularly featured hops that were unprecedented in the right. world. So right. the when when um the story of Cascade is really fascinating. It was the Coors Company that sponsored the production and they they had a they had a hop growers plant a ton of hops, uh Cascade hops, I think mostly in Oregon. Uh-huh. And they made a batch of beer, uh, with, which they, and they were trying to replace cluster hops, which are these kind of old, harsh American right. hops. And they, they wanted to save money. All of this, of course, goes back to saving money. They wanted to save money on imported German hops, which they were using to finish the beer and give it a refined flavor. Right. They wanted a more refined hop that came from America that was cheaper. But they threw, they threw in Cascades, and it tasted like Cascades, <laughs> and it was, it was- What have you done to the beer? Exactly. It was very insistent, very weird flavor. Right. And so they said- Tear them out of the fields. We don't want them. Uh, yeah. But fortunately, this is happening in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and there's little breweries in California who are saying, well, these are kind of cool, and I think home brewers are using them. And so the the hop did not go away and instead uh, became kind of a foundation for all of craft beer. The, you know, for Well, it, it, it was just until last year that the Cascade hops were no longer the most popular hops, and they, they've come and gone. They weren't always the most popular, but it's, it's been a very popular hop for, for well on – you know, 50 years now, so right. or 40 years. Um, and it's, uh, it, it helped condition Americans to a different w- flavor for hops to, you know, a different kind, a different way for hops to present themselves in the palate, right. which is much more intense, much more flavorful and aromatic than, than uh, European hops. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned before, it kind of created the template for the palate of American craft beer. It totally did. I mean, th- it's shifted. You know, we, we now have, uh, many breweries now use more aromatic, uh, more more characteristic uh, yeasts, and they use less caramel, but with with subtle variations, uh, the through line is really really evident. Yeah, from, I mean, from this beer to modern beer. Yeah, you can open a pale ale, and you can sort of exactly sort of follow the threads from this beer to lots and lots of others. Now, there's some sort of uh, you know Belgian farmhouse ales and other craft beer styles that have come, right. but but in terms of sort of the main stuff especially that led to to, to the IPA craze <clears throat> this is this is the beginning one thing i'm struck by tasting this beer now uh is that while in the 1980s it seemed incredibly fresh and vibrant and unbritish like to me uh-huh. now by in comparison to where we are with american hot <laughs> yeah. american beers it seems very british to me uh and explain why i know what you're talking about but go ahead it's got um it's got a kind of balance that's characteristic of english beers mm-hmm. so it's very uh uh you take a drink and you almost immediately want to have another drink. It's soft, but it has a lot of uh, balance. It's got a little malty sweetness. It's got some malty sweetness. Yeah. The the uh, the 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 flavor impact is at a lower level, which really facilitates drinking, makes you want to drink more of it. Mm-hmm. But it's really uh, you know it's got a lot of flavor going on, so it's got quite a bit of it's not it's not neutral by any by any stretch. It's not like a mass market lager. It's got a lot of flavor. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's also <clears throat> remarkable in that it's still it's, an excellent beer and really, I mean, for being so old, it's still so modern it's just like a beer that you could serve to anybody now and yeah. any craft beer enthusiast, right? You know, I was saying that until about five years ago. Now when I taste it, it doesn't taste quite as modern to me as it used to. Well, yeah, I, no, I know what you're saying, but I just mean that it's not something that you immediately put down and say, ugh, you know, that's, mm. that's not among the flavor profile that we now revere right it's it's, yeah, absolutely it's totally in the wheelhouse but yeah i i get what you mean it's it's kind of a throwback and delightful one in my in my mind yeah it's interesting we're about to try another beer that neither of us have had in a long time and i i expect it's actually going even though it 
post dates Sierra Nevada, I have a sense it's going to taste much older yeah. in some ways. So, so let's do it. Let's do it. It's the it's the Mountain Pale Ale, <laughs> as you kept pointing out. This is Dale's. Uh, many people will know Dale's because Dale's ended up sort of becoming a big hit and traveling far and wide. Dale's Pale Ale is from Oscar Blues Brewery in Colorado. And Oscar Brew Blues as uh, important brewery in that they uh, were the first to go to cans and now everybody makes cans and when they first did it uh, cans were considered the mark of uh, they were de classe low low yep. you know only like you only put crap beer in cans but they stuck with it and, and they stuck with it they call Dale's the first craft beer in can I have no reason to dispute no I think that's totally right I have no reason to dispute that and it's amazing now that cans are starting to dominate yeah, I think cans now. I think when breweries uh, come online and they start putting it into a package, they almost always go for for cans now instead of <laughs> really shoving it up into Edwina. There, <laughs> poor Edwina. Poor Edwina. Uh, at which, least, at least I didn't pour beer on Edwina this. So time. the first thing is remarkable. This is almost exactly the same color profile of Sierra Nevada. It is looks exactly yeah. the same. You're right. Uh, I want to I want to do a quick a quick little digression on cans, please. Because I love cans. This is It's not a digression. We're talking about Oscar Blue, so you're right on the money. Man. I think cans are fantastic. I think cans are wonderful. But I will admit, uh, I think cans are a superior way to uh, to package your beer and transport your beer. And I like, I prefer to buy in cans. But I still do not like to drink from cans. I like to decant anyway. It's a, it's a point you've made in the past. Have I? And criticized me for it because I drink from the can, and you say I'm a philistine. Well, so the, but I'm gonna I'm gonna well actually this was last pod, which was a week ago that we recorded. Right. So you uh, probably don't remember, but but I was gonna say I had Allagash White from a can, and it was just a it was nice, but it's just not the same yeah. as being able to decant. There are some beers that require better treatment for sure. Well, uh, particularly the aromatic beers. That's yeah. where I'm going. Yeah. So particularly aromatic beers, that's the one thing you really lose. And it's true in a bottle as well, although a bottle somehow is a slightly more elegant way to drink a beer, I think. Uh, yeah. But you really lose that aroma. So all I'm going to say is just I encourage when possible to please decant your beer because then you get the the visual and the and the, uh, the scent as well as the taste. All right. So, all right, so let's talk about Oscar Blues now. Yes. now I'm done with my done Smell with my. this beer. That is a weird aroma. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know what's going on there. So this beer is six and a half percent and sixty IBUs, which is really not to trend right now. Oh, but one, yeah, one taste, and I understand why the the appeal because it's easy drinking. You probably it goes down smooth. It's not nearly as hop forward. It's not nearly as bitter as Sierra Nevada. And it's heavier, for sure. I think it is more bitter. I think it's got a real metallic finish. That well, okay, yeah. Let me put it that way. Yeah. So you're right. Probably in IBU terms, I'm sure you're right. But I just mean in terms of the the malt, uh, the sort of the heavy malt mm -hmm. base. Thank uh, you. I thought you were going to finish that sentence. <laughs> well, you were. At, I was looking at you and I thought you had something to say. Yeah. So uh, that heavy malt base kind of uh, balances the bitterness out. And, and and so in balance, I would call it slightly more sweet than than uh, Sierra Nevada. Yeah, it's just, <clears throat> it's weirdly balanced. Both both ba both both elements are, are strong. So it's got, as you know, it's got 60 IBUs. So it's got a lot of bitterness, but it's got a lot of sweetness. So it's just kind of, you know, both, if you're, if you're on the dials, you're dialing them both up pretty high. Um, I, I, I th go ahead. 
I was going to say, it's got a, a little weird aroma. There's some little weird thing in the aroma, and there's also something a little bit weird in the palate. Yeah, I'm getting that too. What is it? I, I was going to use a term, but I don't want to slag it off because it's a popular beer and people like it a lot, and it's quite sort of nice, but it's got a little funny flavor profile. Well, I said metallic, which is not ever positive. There's never a time when you try to put metallic into your beer, so that's not positive. Yeah, well, but my term was even worse, so I'm not going to say it. It's a little stanky. There's something kind of... Thank you. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. There's something kind of... Yeah. It seems it seems Brewpub 1995 beer to me. And it's interesting because uh, we, we see an evolution, and you can see it more evidently looking back when you have this beer that's kind of a high watermark for a kind of beer that was, was probably not clearly an evolution mm-hmm. at the time, but now it seems very much uh, an evolution in that. Uh, it was still called a pale. Mm-hmm. It's six and a half percent and uh, sixty IBUs. We're going to try in a minute. We're going to try an, a beer that's called an IPA that's five point one percent and thirty IBUs. Yeah. So you know, marketing from a marketing perspective, in the mid nineties or whenever this came out, mid to late nineties, whenever this came out, pale ales were selling. They were by far the best selling right. American beer. That's what everybody wanted. Yeah. So you, but they were trying to dial everything up and give people a little bit, you know, distinguish themselves by doing more, which was kind of what was happening and in the use 90s. the nomenclature of IPA for that. Uh, these guys used pale because that's what people were selling. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to the Dales. Yeah. Yeah, the Dales. And uh, that's what was selling. One thing people don't really often realize is that IPAs didn't become the best-selling craft style until 2011, really late. And that is up shocking. Yeah. Between you know 1980 and 2011, it was pale ales. They dominated everything. Right. So you wanted to have the word pale ale in your can. That right. was gonna was gonna sell. Yeah. So this is a pale ale that's that's big enough to to really be called a, an IPA. Although totally. Although in in some senses I I prefer the pale uh, moniker just because it's really not featuring hops. It's true in 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 that way. I think, uh, and, and that's. I think sort of for, in the common understanding of what an IPA is. For some, for a lot of people, I think, uh, in, in oh, we should have looked up when this came out, this Mountain Pale. Uh, a long time ago. A long time <laughs> ago. When it, when it came out, I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, this is so much like Sierra Nevada, but it's just a little bit more. Um, so you're right. In that way, it was characteristic of, of the vein of brewing, <clears throat> even I'm though gonna, it's it's different. I'm going to be a little, uh, a little um, I don't know, maybe critical and just say that it's possible that people just liked it because it packed more of a kick absolutely people were into a kick yeah you know more bang for your buck yeah i think that's i think that's a big part of it um all right i'm gonna be honest i'm just not loving it no i'm not loving it at all all right so let's move on (laughs) but but this is a good it's okay so here's something pale that's like big enough to be an ipa uh when i went you gave me the task to to get some pails for our podcast i did and so i went thanks for doing it importantly you're welcome (laughs) <laughs> in Portland, Oregon, I went to the store and I found a thousand IPAs. Right. But here's the kick, right? IPAs now, they're calling everything an IPA. So it's a session IPA at 4.8%. Right. Uh, this next beer is classified as an IPA, but we looked it up and it's 5.1%. Right. And it, to me and to you, is like a, an absolutely perfect expression of pale. Yeah, modern. that's my memory. You've had this beer more recently than I have. I haven't had it since last year, and that's oh. how I remember it. So I'm I'm interested to see if I you're still in think you're that. in for something. This is this is this will also double as at least my beer sherpa for the day. By the way, yeah, I know it will be because this is 
So, okay, good. Uh, so this is uh, one of our favorite local breweries, uh, Breakside. Who is a specialty in the hoppy beer category. Yes. Uh, and just uh, the thing that I really appreciate about Breakside is uh, when they bring a beer to market, it it's dialed in. And interestingly, uh, we had a discussion about this a while ago, unrelated to this podcast. You don't remember, but this thing was released at the OBF originally. It was brewed for the Oregon Brewers Fest. Uh, and uh, it was one of those beers. I did have a vague memory, by the way, just, just to my own defense. Okay. Uh, I, I remember it distinctly because festivals are one of these things where you have a lot of beers and you end up having a lot of beers where you say, oh, that's interesting. And you admire the effort and it's sort of a curious you know, cool thing they did, but it's not a beer you just want to sit down and drink a lot of. And late in the day, we came to Breakside. There we go, Edwina. And we poured out, and we got a pour of the rainbows and unicorns, and we both just said, oh, that's beer. That's, let's just, let's call the whole thing off and just, I like, think that's all we drank the rest yeah, of the day. Yeah, let's just drink this forever. Yeah, so uh, this is what this is. This is yeah. rainbows and unicorns, which Breakside calls an India pale ale. Right. But really, it's not. It's just a pale ale. It's a 5.1% pale. It's uh, slightly hazy. It's more straw than, than copper. But it's got color, for sure. It's not, oh, yeah. uh, no, no, not, no. A, not a Pilsner malt beer, no, for no, no, sure. No. Yeah, I should be more clear. It's golden. Yeah. Let's call it golden. Uh, and um, But it's thoroughly modern. It's got a super aroma. Let me get my nose down in that bad boy. <sighs> So oh, yeah. the reason you're the reason you're uh, you're having fun with my memory is true because I I saw it in the store the other day and I uh, other day a couple months ago and I and I grabbed one having a vague memory of really liking the beer uh, and I uh, was blown away so here we go again so the the hops here are also I think you know one one of the things is for a lot of years uh, if you made a pale ale it, you would not make a pale ale you would not be able to call a beer a pale ale if it didn't have Cascade hops right. And this beer has Comet, which is an old-school American hop, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it dates back, to, I think, to the 70s. Uh, El Dorado, very new-school hop. Galaxy, very new-school new hop. Mm -hmm. So um, you got that going on. The malts are like Crystal and Turo, so that is pretty classic pale. Yep. Pale, uh, what you would put in a pale. Uh, it's got intense aroma and flavor. It's got a beautiful balance of a bit of maltiness with a nice, slight bitter appropriate for a 5.1% beer. Yeah. I taste this beer and I feel like okay, now I got to I got to talk about the nature of a pale ale. Okay. I think about pale ales more than more than is probably healthy. All right, go call the commentator. The pale ale serves a really important function in in among beer among beer styles. Mm -hmm. Uh and it's akin to a uh, beer like a Helles um well, that's what's coming to mind. A Hell's or Pilsner. Mm -hmm. Beers that you want to be able to sit down and have three or four of. Four or five of. Depend, mm -hmm. uh, depends on what country you're in. Mm -hmm. If you're in the Czech Republic, <laughs> you want to have nine or ten of. Uh, so the beer has to be balanced enough so that you can continue to drink it over the course of a, a session. Mm -hmm. You don't get no, no single element becomes tiring or wears you out. Mm -hmm. It has to be balanced enough and the intensity has to be low enough so that you can have a whole session with it. And this is where uh, modern American IPAs often fail. They're, right. they're a little bit too intense. Yeah. You kind of have to balance, you know, go back and forth with other beers. Yeah. And it has to uh, have interest so that, uh, you know, if you're in your third or fourth beer 
in your session, you you're can st- stop and think, my God, that's a great beer. Yeah, you're still discovering new things. Yeah. yeah. So that's the nature of a pale. And we have this old uh, uh, Sierra Nevada model, which I think is a perfect example of those kinds of beers. People have purchased six packs and 12 packs of Sierra Nevada and drunk them in in, in groups for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it serves that purpose really well. Now we've come to the new style of brewing where we have very intense beers, lots of flavor, lots of aroma. And uh, we, we have to figure out how do we take the characteristics, the, 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 uh, the way new beers are, are put together with the new hops and the new malting or hopping regimes, but still make it have that, retain that kind of balance so yeah. that you can have it over, you know, you could imagine drinking four of them. That's yeah. my model. Yeah, a good no, pale that, ale. You should want to. You should want to drink that fourth pale ale as much as you wanted to drink that first one. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really good way to think about it because uh, IPA, I suppose, is a little bit more in your face, hit you over the head. All right, you're going to have one or two. It's going to be an intense experience. And a pale ale, exactly that. It's something. It's more sessionable. It's more uh, um, subtle. You live with it longer. You have a, you develop a relationship. Yeah, you channeling do. John Keeling. Exactly, the uh, perf- a classic, a classic case of a oh yeah, a British Cascale. That's you know, your Hellas, your British Cascale. Sorry, yeah, how did I forget that? So, so let's talk a little bit about the distinction then between a session IPA. How would you distinguish between a session IPA? If if I understand that the, this is all blurred in the real world, but I'm saying right. how would you, Jeff Allworth, distinguish between a session IPA and a pale ale? In order to get the session IPA down to the uh, four to four and a half percent range, which is typical for those for that style, you have to strip back all the malt. There's very little malt in there, right? And then you, uh, to get it to be the to, to call it an IPA, you have to have all the intensity of the hops that you would have in a right. regular IPA, right? And in my experience, they're just way out of balance. And mm-hmm. so when I taste it, it just feels like there's no bottom. There's no base there. It's all it's all hops. It's all top notes. Right. And my palate gets pretty tired pretty fast. Right. I, I did. They're just not in balance. I need I need that malt base, which is the thing that that balances it out. That sweetness continues to make it supports those hops, so that you can continue to drink those hops through the course of your session. Yeah. So for me, that's the big difference. Uh, one session IPA is great. Four is I can't go four. Right. So when I come, so if if you ask me. If I were to get in a debate with, uh, debate with uh, Ben Edmonds at Breakside <clears throat> about whether this was an IPA or a pale, I would say it's ridiculous, man. It's absolutely not a pale and uh, not an IPA. Right. There's no way you can defend this as an IPA. Right. But it's a great pale, and I could and I could and, and have drunk multiples of this beer. Yeah. So and uh, as I'm drinking it again, I'm seeing all that all that balance. It's and so well balanced and it's so rich that you never guess it's 5.1. You were really shocked when we were texting about that today. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I didn't even, th- by the way, this was not one that I bought at the store. Right. This you had one, it in your fridge. This is one I had in my fridge. And you <laughs> said, and you said, oh, well, this is the perfect example of a modern pale. Right. It's Rainbow's Unicorn. Well, I, I said, well, I have that, but that's an IPA. They call it an IPA. And I had no idea. I mean, I would have guessed at least a 6% beer. That That's how rich and, and, and wonderful a mouthfeel it has. Uh, and I also told you that it's my current favorite beer. It's It's really fantastic. So let's talk about it. What what do you taste? Well, one one of the things I love about this beer is it when you first smell it and you first taste it, the hops do seem it does seem like it's going to be top heavy. It yeah. feels like it's overwhelming. Yep. But on drink three and four, all of a sudden everything starts coming to balance. Those hops no longer seem nearly as intense, and somehow there's a way in which the it, it's all flavor and aroma. It's not it's not bitterness, and it's it's not the, these things that that 
that persist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes bitterness will, uh, and other hop characteristics will coat your tongue and gather, and yes. this, this actually dissipates. Yeah. So one thing I really love about it is that the I get all the juiciness and the aroma, and I can just sit there. It's the kind of beer that I hold under my nose during a session, and right. just as I'm talking to somebody, take take hits from time to time. <laughs> That's great. I love that. People, you know, all, my my blog readers think that I'm all about. Uh, Loggers, and then I'm this old traditionalist who doesn't like new stuff. But I got to tell you, this this is right up my alley. So, taking hits off of that is perfect. Yeah. So that's what's beautiful about this beer is that it's got that hop intensity, but it doesn't coat your tongue. It doesn't destroy your palate. It it vanishes until you're ready to take another sip, and then it's got this beautiful sort of silky mouthfeel. Yeah, and if you if you uh, the the this is a uh, an important uh, marker. When, when thinking about these different styles is the aftertaste is actually really uh, uh, an important kind of uh, measure, metric for, for mm-hmm. thinking about what these, how these beers will play. Uh, with IPAs, when you swallow what's left behind is all hops. Right. Like it's the aroma. It's the, it, there's like there's very little malt yeah. to sustain it. When you finish this beer, there's quite a bit of the malt. The, there's a little bit of sweetness in the hops. The, the hops continue to volatilize a little bit, but you get you get both, and right. that's 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 the balance. You have to have that balance on the the back of the palate when you finish a beer, or else it will not be a good session beer. If it's too intense on one side, you don't get that. In fact, with hazy IPAs coming along, there's this new phrase called hop burn uh-huh. because they're so intense that it leaves a burning sensation to some palates. Interesting. And that's not a thing that's going to well, wear well. You no. Know? Hot burn is not something you want. And this beer, uh, you get the retronasal aroma, so that is the aroma that uh, presents itself inside the mouth. Right. Um, you get that uh, as a remnant, but it's not, um, it's not a chemical sensation that's coating the tongue. It's just what's left in the back of the tongue, uh, you know, the back of the mouth as you yeah. As you swallow. And we're getting a little far afield, but this is kind of a miracle of modern brewing, right? The, the way that brewers have learned to harness these new hops and to utilize these new hops is really pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. And, you know, uh, you have an entire country that every, nearly every brewer in the country is, is making these and all the breweries talk to each other. So you're having this kind of ferment of uh, discussion yeah. about how to make these. And in fact, this is an interesting uh, thing that I just learned on the Twitter, uh, actually not on the Twitter, but I put it on the Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, John Harris made a beer with Bells uh-huh. for his fifth anniversary, and he talked about throwing ice into the whirlpool. Right? Did you see that? Yes. I, oh, I saw your your comment about it. Yeah, I'd never heard that. That's super bizarre. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have no explanation because I put that on. Uh, I put that on. Uh, there was you, a lot of hell given to me about uh, the phone action before before this podcast. And there you, was, you there was, and I, I would like to show you that I'm still on, a, on do not disturb. Somehow my my younger son got through he my hacked. do not disturb. He hacked my do not disturb. That's impressive. Uh, because last time, as listeners will well recall, Jeff's phone got started ringing in the middle of our of our session. So uh, now I have no moral authority anymore. You don't. Left over. And the and the listener will know that we're a little fast and loose with our, our, our production <laughs> quality. So. Fast and loose is almost anything. That's right. Uh, okay. So anyway, it's interesting that, you know, the brewers are, and then I put it out on, the, on, on Facebook about whether anybody else adds ice. And the adding ice is unusual, apparently, but uh, the, so we should say, 
in modern brewing uh, with making American IPAs, after you take the beer off the kettle, which is when you boil it, uh, you put it in a separate vessel. And these vessels are called different things. They do different things. But the key point is that there's no longer heat there, so it's right. beginning to cool. And whether it's in a hot back or a whirlpool, you can throw hops in there and let them steep like tea. Right. And it and it will uh, the what you extract from those hops will be different than if you're applying heat and it's 212 degrees. Right. But these brewers have discovered that if you get it down to about 180 degrees, you get a sweet spot of flavor and aroma without bitterness, pulling wow. out pulling bitterness. And so they are now using different techniques mm -hmm. to get the beer down, get the wort down to 180 quickly, right. uh, and then get the hops in. And that way they can extract those flavors and aromas without uh, exposing the beer to too much environmental activity, which would be dangerous for beer. You want to get you want to get it on in you know on the process without uh, wild yeasts and bacteria getting in there. So, so isn't this so fantastic? Like a lot of what we know from beer is ancient tradition, right? Passed down for hundreds of years, right? Right. But now we're learning all kinds of new things because we have all kinds of new hop varietals, new ingredients. Totally. And, and new traditions are being born right now. And these brewers are figuring stuff out as they go. And, and you know. It's yeah. like a new beer renaissance, Jeff. I, it is. I follow the beer industry pretty closely. And these are, you know, these, this is new to me. Yeah. Uh, I talked for my last book. Here, hand me that. We're going to go. We got to go one more. We're, we're getting late on time. Well, oh, the, the cop. I was like, what? Hand me what? Uh, if we're going to get through this incredibly dense pale discussion that we're having because it's such a wonderful style everyone should be drinking. When I when I was talking to Ben Edmonds who made uh, Breakside's uh, Rainbow right. and Unicorns uh -huh. about uh, hops for Secrets of the Master Brewers which was maybe like three years ago that I was talking to him about that. Right. We talked about hopping techniques and uh, and the new techniques and I think when that book was published, it had the most cutting-edge hopping techniques that anybody could find in print. <laughs> and now they're old school. And now they're uh, they're not old school, but it's definitely the case that, uh, you know, things have moved on. People have figured more out, and we're seeing more stuff. So it's pretty cool. We're, yeah, we're always we're always innovating, and and you know, to get back to my my jam of culture. Cult, you know, different people make cultures in Cologne, and they make. Uh, Hellas in Munich and they make Cascale in London and they make IPAs and pale ales in America and the way they make them are distinctive from any other kind of brewing tradition. Right. And these Americans are continuing to push this forward and so now we're seeing things like cooling down your whirlpool which is really bizarre. Like a, the whirlpool was originally designed as a vessel so that when you came out of the kettle you put it in the whirlpool and you literally spun it around like a whirlpool so all the crap which is called trube, right. in the kettle would collect in the middle and then you could get get your hot wort off of that trube and not send it on into the uh, fermentation vessel. Right. That's what it was for. Right. Now, people are adding hops, they're cooling it down. They're, it's like, it's a totally it's different a vessel. Purpose, yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying it's kind of like a renaissance. This is like a golden age that people are living in, in beer that uh, had not heretofore been experienced. It is 100% a renaissance. And when people who love traditional ales get pissed off at uh, American IPAs, I think, how can you not see Edwina? Ooh. Nice. Uh, how can you not see that what we're seeing right now in front of us is the birth of one of these traditions you love and revere, minus the hundred years that has separated you from the birth of those traditions? Yeah, absolutely. So... And so it tastes that, so good. And that brings us to our last beer, which yep. I think is right on point for what we're talking about in terms of evolution. We have a uh, Fort George City of Dreams 
in front of us. Which is called a pale ale. It's a 5.5% ABV beer. But it don't look like Sierra Nevada. <laughs> but it is uh, in the hazy tradition. And it and it and even the color is really different. Even though it's hazy, it's really pale. Yeah. It's pale it's hazy. It's more but, straw. So, yeah. so when I describe straw... Uh, the Rams Unicorn is really golden, and this is more straw, but very hazy. But very hazy, and um, you know, and if you go to one of these new style breweries that does that specializes in hazy beers, they'll make beers called hazy, uh, called IPAs and pales. They're mm-hmm. all hazies, so right. hazy has become its own category now. Right. But within that hazy category, there are pales, right. and here we have one. Actually, you and I both know this beer really well. Yes. Uh, that's a beer we buy all the time yes. uh, because it is both full of flavor and 5.1% or whatever it is, which 5. is 5%, yes. in our wheelhouse. I like this beer because um, it is uh, Northwest hazy. It's mm-hmm. got uh, a noticeable amount of bitterness to yep. go along with all the other characteristics that characterize hazy, mm-hmm. but it's got all the juiciness that you love. Yeah. I got to say, though, the rainbows and unicorns, <laughs> and it it just you know, but that's splitting hairs, right? Like, these are both hairs. fantastic beers. It is uh, interesting though how how um, you can get as much flavor out of a beer that doesn't have haze as you uh, much hop flavor. Uh, yeah, haze is really just a as you've gone on at length about haze is just a visual affect of the beer and, and a, not and as a, much a flavor affect and a cue to to consumers that this will taste like sure. they want it to. Yeah, so. and actually, I think that's really interesting, right? Like we, that, consumers have been taught that if you see a very hazy beer, it's going to have a certain characteristic. Uh, and wo- and, wo- and woe to the brewer that <laughs> makes a hazy beer that doesn't have that super saturated hop. Right, right. It, it would be like making a yeah. pilsner that tastes like a porter or something. Yeah. But you that's gotta... totally. I mean, that's that's totally fine. I think that's fantastic. I think that that's right. The term hazy means something, mm-hmm. and it's a useful term. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and what I think the purpose of this podcast is really to say that the term "pale" actually does mean something, right? And probably deserves its its rightful place in the in the center of the of the pantheon of of major craft beer styles, even oh, though it's kind of lost its faith. Absolutely, I, I really I, I was talking to a brewer some years ago now, and I can't remember which one, but there's a lot of them in Portland that I think would share this, and it was in Portland. Do you remember that? share the sentiment which is he said uh and it was a he um i love pale ales and i really wish they could sell Mm -hmm. uh i I would make pale ales all day long if they would sell yeah and i ever since he said that and that was probably five years ago i have been really really trying to promote this style because it is such a wonderful style and it's it's got all the stuff that uh modern people who like their hops should like but it's just a slightly different direction and for whatever reason the word pale now sounds like something grandpa drank yeah um which this this has happened to styles you know i've done done a lot of research in uh, on 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 how styles fail and the way they fail is when young people begin to think of a beer as grandpa's beer and that's that's doom and so let's hope that pales will revive um i'm going to offer one sherpa when we get to that moment uh from a young brewery that's really championing pails. And uh, I don't know if you have a Sherpa or not, but we, we can talk about breweries that are really taking the style seriously. And I hope rehabilitating it in the minds of young drinkers who who I think will, would love beers like uh, Rainbows and Unicorns and, and City of Dreams and others. So Right. 
you have any final thoughts on pale ales? No, just that that I think that we're stretching things when we call things like the Rainbows and Unicorns, India Pale Ale or Session Pale Ale. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, India Pale Ales or Session India Pale Ale, Session right. IPAs. Uh, just to avoid, I think you're exactly right. They're avoiding the term pale ale because pale ale seems really old school. Seems like a 1994, you know, uh, moniker, and that's not what people want. Yeah. Uh, so I would love it if we can reclaim the title pale ale, and it means something p- specific to consumers, right? Which is uh, a little less alcohol, a little more sessionable, uh, a hop-forward beer, but not uh, dominated by hops, and a little malt, and a little malt. Yeah, totally. And so let's 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 put the marker down. Let's reclaim that term. Let's have it as a major craft beer style that people love and revere. For all you brewers out there who know that the Beer Vana podcast defines beer <laughs> and it's on the cutting edge of changing opinion, you heard it here first. Everyone's laughing. Why is everyone laughing? Well, I said we'll know we'll know the the <laughs> the measure of our uh, of our impact when uh, Breakside decides to re label its rainbows and unicorns as a pale ale. That's right. Pale ale. Get rid of that word India, man. It's a, it's a straight pale and it's yep. a damn fine one. Yep, absolutely. That's probably your Sherpa, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, How can it not be? It, 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 it's my current favorite. I'll, tell, I'll, I'll say this explicitly. It's my current favorite beer. Nice. Yep. And mm-hmm. that'll change when the when the weather gets cold. But uh, it's a perfect summer beer. Man, it's a good yeah. beer. Well, I, I never, but when people used to ask me favorite beers, right? like now I always qualify as saying current favorite beer because that it evolves, it changes, it changes in context, changes the weather, changes it. But I actually right. love that about you. I could name your favorite beers going back maybe 10 years. And it's, uh-huh. it's a cool kind of, uh, past, uh, not pastiche, it's a cool you know survey course of where we've been in beer. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to challenge you. So, ten years ago, what was my favorite IPA? Uh, total domination. Oh, good. Good. I was also going to say Racer Five. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That was before, probably. Yeah. Probably before Racer Five. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there you go. It's amazing. So it's fun to think about, right? Because that that flavor, uh, Racer Five flavor profile, is so uh, old now. Like, yeah. Different. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Totally. No, Racer Five was definitely there, and and I know you had favorite beers before that too, but that's kind of in the IPA era. That was when we had hit full on IPA. I remember, yeah. I remember um, an evening in your backyard drinking Racer IPA, Racer Five IPAs. I'm yeah. talking about what a great beer. Well, and 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 I was like all hell bent on trying to recreate it. Uh-huh. Uh, went in homebrew. If you remember that, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so. it turns out these beers are really kind of hard to recreate. It is. Yeah. Uh, you can make a good beer, but making an exact copy of a beer that you really admire is hard. Yeah, yeah. What well, the key was learning how to add hops, late, late edition hops, cold side hops. Yeah, so. totally. All right. Uh, so, what's your beer sherpa? Well, my beer sherpa is going to be a brewery rather than a beer okay. because um, this is a brewery that that champions pale ales, loves pale ales, uh, and makes a lot of pale ales, but they don't necessarily stick around. Yep. One, um, my beer, the uh, the brewery is called Level Brewing, mm-hmm. and in 2018. Uh, my beer of the year was a uh, pale ale from Level Brewing. It was right. called uh, Cool Kids Like Pale uh-huh. Ale. And they were also trying to revive, you know, interest in that, Cool Kids Like. So if you're a cool kid, you should buy it. But they haven't made that beer again. But they continue to make very credible, very cool uh, pale ales that have the juicy profile modern people like. Uh, everything we've talked about. Nice malt base, 5%, you know, five, five, yeah, 4.9 to 5.5%. That's your sweet spot for yeah. a session beer. Yeah. Um, they just, they love these beers. They make them wonderfully. And, um, they've got one called pixelated pale now. That's really nice. And they, they, and I don't know how long that's going to stay around, but get yourself to level brewing. 
I think at some point we should have Jason Barbie, who's the brewer there. Uh, he used to be at Ex Novo. He's a real champion of smaller beers and trying to revive uh, session beers. So he does milds. He does uh, yeah. session lagers. He does session saisons. He does he he, does, he likes little beers and he really does a good job with pales. So so to prove a point. When I was looking for pale ales, I saw three or four level beers in the store, <laughs> but they were all IPAs, which just goes to show you where the Portland market is at. It's right. still IPA dominant, right? Yeah. So if they're going to sell beer, they're probably finding that the IPA is easier to sell than the pale. They so should. it's a fight. So we're this is today on the podcast, we're, we're reviving the pale ale. We're throwing a marker down. That's man. right. If you're cool, you drink pale ale. Yeah, IPAs is so old. That's what grandpa beer is. Yeah, that's old, man. You're washing. <laughs> Come on. Get with it. All right. Uh, so uh, level beer is your Sherpa. Mine is the Rainbows and Unicorns from Breakside Brewing. I realize these are both local Portland area beers, but that's where we live. So yeah. that's craft beer for you. That's craft beer for you. And also we could throw in Peeper Pale Ale, uh, which started this whole thing, which we both think is extraordinary oh, from Main Beer Company. So yeah, that's there's it. your East Coast connection. That's a good point. Yeah. If you're in the East Coast, you could probably, if you work hard, you could probably find a Peeper. And yeah. if not, just drive to Maine. What's holding you back? So I, I blew our wad on a uh, mailbag from our, our great hiatus. And so we're, we're low on ha- uh, mailbags. But please send us comments, questions. Uh, if you have uh, opinions about Pale Ale, get them to us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Yep. Uh, Jeff at com. That's one way to do it. Beer, at Pod on the Twitter handle is another way to do that. That's a new good way to do it, yes. Yeah. So you can either... Direct message us or just tweet us. Either way, we will put you on the pod, and right. we'd love to hear your thoughts. And there's also a Beer Vana Blog Facebook page. That's right. So, uh, also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and we're on Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us and to review us. That would be great. It helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we just talked about uh, how you can get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you, even if it's just a comment. Let us know what you think, uh, ways we can improve. We'd love to hear it. Uh, Jeff, he blogs at the Birvana blog. He tweets at at Birvana, and he writes lots of books. I do. Patrick uh, tweets a lot. Well, some at Birvanomics. That's right. So check him out. Check us both out. All right. So, uh, oh, you grabbed the rainbows, unicorns, but that's okay because I have City of Dreams. No, I have City of Dreams. This is almost. I, was just, I did not grab that Dales. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Oscar Blues. You make some fine beers, but Dales is a little dated. Just, just going to grab this other one. I have City of Dreams in Fort George. It's delightful. Both these beers are great. Yeah. yeah. Portland, Oregon, I'm telling you what. I know. What a great, what a great time to be alive and drinking beer. Yeah. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>